The scripture for today is taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 33 through 39. Thus says the Lord. Here, another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. They took him, and they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. That says the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Pam. Uh, let's pray. Father God, let the weight of your word dis- destroy our hearts that are so prone to push you out of the vineyard. Let it take over our souls that are so content to live in a world without you in a masterless world where we are our own masters. I pray that your love will overcome it and take it and that we would come and see the true God. Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So you came here to church today and you saw the Christmas decor. You heard the Christmas songs. You saw the Christmas liturgy. But then you read the passage today and you probably thought, where is baby Jesus? <laughs> right? Where, where, where is the Christmas sermon? Don't worry. Baby Jesus will show up. And when he does, I hope that we'll see, although the passage may not explicitly talk about the things we might expect to see in Christmas, Mary and Joseph, baby Jesus, the wise men. I hope that we see that the heart of the Christmas story is still very much central in the passage we just read. And when we do end up seeing Christ in this passage, I hope that it will be life-giving to our souls. But I also think that it may be somewhat challenging. Now, we don't often think of the Christmas story as a challenging story, right? We just sung, Hark the herald angels sing, Glory to the newborn king, peace on earth, and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. It's a a comforting story. It's, It's a story about God sending his son to redeem us. But think about it. If God had to send his son to redeem us, think about the implications there. Think about what the Christmas story actually says about us. It says that we're not good enough. It says that we're not strong enough. It says that we do not have what it takes to save ourselves, and we need a savior. <laughs> that, that's rather challenging, right? No one wants to hear that. Try writing that on a Christmas card. Merry Christmas, because you couldn't have done it on your own. No one wants to hear that. It's it's unbelievably challenging. But it's also unbelievably beautiful. And I hope by the end of our passage, we'll see that it's unbelievably personal. It's personal. So in our passage today, we'll we'll see Christmas, the Christmas story through Jesus' words as he's telling a parable to a group of people called the Pharisees. Now, we're not going to understand the, par- the parable, what it's talking about, unless we understand these two things. Let me just briefly get into it before we start. First, it's a parable. A parable is a made-up story. Jesus made up a story to make a point, okay? 
how do we know what the point is? Well, it's by studying this story under the context it's in, which is the second thing. What is the context? Well, we see here Jesus sharing the story, sharing this made-up parable to a group of people called the Pharisees. Who are the Pharisees? The Pharisees are very religious people, people who looked like they got it all together. They're very moral, and also people who really hated Jesus. And Jesus here is saying something very, very profound, much needed, both for you here that are Christians and also for you here today that might still be exploring the gospel, might still be wanting to know what Christianity is all about. If you're a Christian, it's unbelievably important because it will remind you of the power and the engine of your Christianity that is so often very easily, easily forgettable by us. And if you're here exploring the gospel, trying to figure out what is Christianity all about, what's the big deal about this Bible thing, about this Jesus thing, about Christmas, you might still have questions by the end of it, but at least I hope it will serve you in a way that it gets down to the bottom of it. It tells you, okay, let's take the fluff away. What is, what is Christianity really all about? What is so great about this Jesus? What's the big deal behind this Christmas season? All right, there's three things I want to point out from our passage. One, a made-up world we have created. Two, the destructive convenience of this world. And three, a relentlessly personal God. A made-up world we have created, the destructive convenience of this world, and a relentlessly personal God. All right, let's jump into it. First point, a made-up world we have created. Let's take a look at the parable again. Verse 33. Jesus says, hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Remember, this is a made-up story Jesus made up to make a point. Okay, so who is the master here really? Who is, who is the master supposed to symbolize or point to? It's meant to point to God. The master is God. And we see this not because it's only obvious from the story. But also, if you know the Old Testament, this is an echoing of Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 7, where God is described as the master of the vineyard. And he made a tower. And he, all the similarities of the master here is associated to Yahweh in Isaiah chapter 5. We don't have time to talk about that in depth. Read it later on your own. But God here is the master of the vineyard. So what does God, the master of the vineyard, do at the end of verse 33? He leases his vineyard to tenants. Tenants is another word for hired hands, people who can enjoy living in the vineyard, but they must acknowledge the master. They must live in a relationship with this master as a master-servant relationship. They must give to the master what is rightfully his. But yet, what do the tenants in this parable do? They rejected the master. When harvest time came, verse 34, the master sent three different servants to get his fruit. What do they do? They beat the first servant. They killed the second, and they stoned the third. So what does the master do? He was a patient master, see? Verse 36, he sends more servants, but they killed them too. And at the end, this is the shocking verse at the very end, the master sends not more servants, but his son. Surely, surely they'd respect my son. Lo and behold, they killed him too. What is Jesus saying here? What's going on? It's this. The tenants wanted to live in the world of the master 
where they can enjoy the benefits of it, but they wanted nothing to do with the master. They wanted to live in the world of the master without anything to do, without wanting have, having anything to do with the master. In other words, here's, here's their problem. Might be ours too. They wanted to create a world, their own world, where they were their own masters, a world where the power and authority were in their hands. In other words, they desired to live under a lie. That they are their own masters in their own world. They have the power to decide their own destiny. They have the power to decide their own purpose and their own calling. They live in a world where they are their own gods. Why? Why would they want to do this? Well, because this sort of world, it feels safe, doesn't it? We're the ultimate one that has control. It, it seems peaceful. It seems comfortable, controllable, convenient, right? If we get to determine our own fate, it's, it seems safe. We want, it's tempting to live in it, even when it's not true. And friends, we do this all the time. We all seek a world where we have the power, even when that world is a world of lies. Let me show you. Let's think of substance abuse. What is substance abuse? In, in a desire level. Now, I don't want to minimize addiction. I don't want to minimize how it changes our, our minds and, and destroys our synapses. I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to minimize that. Let's just take all of that out of the discussion from now and talk about it at a desire level. What is drug and alcohol abuse? It's a desire to gain power and create a world where there is seeming peace and forget the problems, forget the pains of the world and experience a sort of euphoria. Now, at the end of this, the world of addiction always comes crashing down, but for a moment, it gives the addict power, doesn't it? It gives him power to create a world of peace. Not true peace, but a peace that's caused by numbing and forgetfulness. What is willful ignorance? I know a story of a wife. Uh, you don't know them. It's, 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 it's kind of a, a well-detached story. And, and this lady also talks about it freely, so I don't feel bad uh, sharing it because sh uh, she shares it with everybody um, as a part of her story. Um, a wife who knew, she knew. She saw all the signs. She knew her husband was cheating on him. But she chose to ignore it. I mean, I mean, the signs were obvious. It was obvious. And the only reason why she didn't want to see it is because she chose not to. And she found out years later, lo and behold, the husband did actually cheat on her. So eventually, the, the, her made-up world collapsed. But for a moment, for a moment, it was comforting. This made-up world gave her power to control her comfort. Even though the comfort was not true peace, it was caused by a suppression of the truth. You see, we all desire this. When we hear these stories, it shouldn't cause us to feel superior over them. It shouldn't cause us to, to feel prideful because we all have our own versions of a made-up world that gives us comfort and peace. This is the one I hear a lot um, uh, often people want to create a world where they are powerful and respected at work. Why? Because they don't want to be reminded of how small they are made to feel at home by their spouse. Something I find myself doing a lot is I create a world of fake success. When I give reports about CCC to our supporters or people that are supporting us, I give them kind of the good stuff and I leave out a lot of the bad stuff, right? 
Why? Because I can't stand living in a world where I don't seem impressive. It's shameful, I know. Pastors are sinners too, did you know? Friends, we all do this. We all, we all in our own ways are like these tenants. In one way or another, we desire to have power and authority to create our own world, to be masters of our own realities, even though that reality is a lie. And when something threatens that made-up world of ours, we hate it. We, we're allergic to it. We respond to it. We want to kill it. Don't burst my bubble. That's what's happening here. The tenants were content living in a world that they were their own masters. They didn't want to change it. They pushed the true master out. Now, here's the twist. You may have gone to church before and you've heard something similar to this, what I just said, that we're all sinners, that we all, like the tenants here, challenge God's authority. We want to be our own gods. That's what disobedience is, right? That's what sin is. We're, we're, we're claiming power for ourselves. We're not acknowledging God as the master. We want to be our own masters. And when we think of the kind of people who would challenge God, when we think of the kind of people these tenants are, who do we think of? We think of murderers. We think of drug dealers. We think of corrupt businessmen and corrupt politicians, people who don't go to church or people who aren't religious. That's who comes to mind when we think of these tenants, right? That's who comes to mind when we think of these people who want their own power in their own world. But here's a twist. Stick with me. This part of Jesus' rebuke might be a bit surprising to you. Remember the context of the parable again. Who is it Jesus was talking to? Who was he rebuking? Was he talking to murderers? Was he talking to drug dealers? Was he talking to people who don't go to church? No. Who was he talking to, friends? Pharisees. Remember who the Pharisees were? Were they murderers? Were they drug dealers? Were they people who were blatantly out there sinful? No. They're the most religious and the most moral people of the day. Take a second to think about that. Jesus is making a very bold statement here. Maybe something you haven't heard before. He's saying, the way that we often reject God, the way that we often make up our own worlds where we have power over God, is through our religion. It's through our moralism. I know it's a big claim, and some might say, I don't know. Show me where in the passage you got that from. Well, let me show you. Take a look at the beginning of verse 33 again. Jesus started this parable saying what? Hear another parable. That's how the passage starts, right? Hear another parable. What does that tell you? That tells you there was a parable before this parable. Hear another parable, right? We got to go to the previous parable and connect this one to that one to get the full meaning of what Jesus is trying to say. Hear, hear another parable. Okay. So what is the previous parable about? Let me, we don't have time to kind of get deep into it, but let me just summarize Jesus' words. Let me summarize the parable here in Matthew chapter 21, verse 31. I think I have it up here. This is what Jesus said to these very religious Pharisees just before he rebuked them with, with the rebuke we, we heard just now. He said this, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. The tax collectors and the prostitutes go to the kingdom of God before you, religious people. Before you, really, really, really put together people. He's telling the Pharisees, he's telling us today, here's what he's saying. You can be very religious and miss the point. You can be very moral and miss Jesus. 
What he's saying, you don't realize, Pharisees, but like these tenants, you have forced God out of the vineyard and made up your own world. You've made up your own reality. How? Not with addiction, not with willful ignorance, but with your religion. What kind of world? Let's call it this. It's the world of self-sufficient religiosity. It's the world of religious self-sufficiency where we think our religion and our morality can somehow have power over God, can somehow make us control God, as if because we're religious and because we're moral, God somehow owes us redemption. God somehow owes us salvation. We, we do this often, don't we? I do. Every time we say, God, I shouldn't be experiencing the hardship I'm experiencing because I've been good. What is that? That's wanting to live in a world where our morality overpowers God. Whenever we say, God will bless me because I've lived an obedient life, that's us living in a made-up world where our obedience should somehow dictate and control God. Whenever we say, God owes me a ticket to heaven because I've been very religious, that's wanting to live in a world of lies where our religiosity can make God owe us something. What is Jesus doing here? He's bursting our bubble. And he's saying this world where you think your religious acts and your morality can somehow control God, it's a lie. It's a lie. It's a made-up world, and you're missing the point. You're missing it. Now, if you're here today and you're still exploring Christianity... Figuring out what is, what is the Bible all about? What is Jesus all about? I hope the second point can summarize to you what Christianity, what is the point? But if you are a Christian here, you have received Christ as Lord and Savior, and you've been going to church your whole life, you've been religious, you've been moral your whole life, don't check out. We're the ones that are most prone to fall into this mistake. We're the ones that are most prone to think that our religiosity can somehow control God and is destroying us. Second point, the destructive convenience of this world. Let's, let's talk about why this world of religious self-sufficiency is so destructive. Because it destroys the whole point of the Christian faith. What's the point? What's the point of the Bible? What's the point of the Christian faith? That God is a personal God. He's a personal God. See, world of religious self-sufficiency, what it does is it depersonalizes God. It depersonalizes him. It keeps him at a distance. How? By making him out to be someone who only cares about your performance and not about you. It's depersonalizing him. Now, to an extent, that's comforting because it gives you some sort of control over him. It gives you power to demand good things from him through the currency of your religion but it destroys intimacy because it depersonalizes him. It keeps him, friends, at a transactional distance, not a person in intimate proximity. But friends, if you do this, you are you're destroying what the Bible says about God. Look at the parable one more time. The Bible is, is, is filled with God trying to tell us he's, he's a personal God. He will not be kept out of distance. Look at the parable. It's so easy to miss this part of just how personal the master is being to his evil tenants. Look at verse 33. 
<coughs> it may seem like the master was just putting the tenants there to work for him, right? It seems like the master views the tenants in a transactional basis. You get to live here if you're able to produce for me, if you're able to give me the fruit and, 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 and be productive. But then you read on. What does the master do after the tenants kill the servants? Verse 36. He sends more servants. Think about that. If the master viewed the tenants merely as hired hands, he would have never sent more servants. He would have never been this patient. If your staff person kills three people you sent to the office to pick up something, what do you do? You know what? Three people, that's no big deal. Let's send them more. No. If you view them merely as hired hands, you're not going to do that. We miss that from this parable. But yet in verse 36, the master sends more servants. And it says more servants than the first time. So at least that's four, maybe five. What do they do? They kill them too. They at least have killed at least seven servants from this master. <laughs> okay. At this point, the master, is, has, he's gone above and beyond, right? He's reached out enough, one might think. He's loved and been patient enough. The tenants don't want anything to do with him. Surely after seven servants dead, he'd give up reaching out to them, right? But no. The shocking last verse, 38, the master sends his son. And what's crazier is you find out this is the master's only son. How? Why? Look at what the evil tenant said in verse 38. <clears throat> this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. This assumes not only he was the oldest son, because back then the oldest son is the one who gets the inheritance, right? But also he's the only son, because if he dies, no one else gets the inheritance. This is the master's only son. He sent his only son to pursue people who wanted nothing to do with him. We see here, friends, not a detached master, but an incredibly personal one. Jesus here is trying to point to us what's been described throughout the whole Bible. This is the point of Christianity, that we have a relentlessly personal God. You see this all throughout Scripture, Jeremiah 30. I will be your God. You will be my people. Jeremiah 31, 34, as it points to what heaven will look like. This is what heaven will look like. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all, what? Know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, the coast. They will, they will know me. They'll have a relationship with me. What does Jesus say eternal life is? In John 17, verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That they know you. That's the message of the Bible. One more. Look at Jesus' words to his disciple Philip, one of the twelve, right? This, if somebody's in the inner circle, it's this guy. But he rebuked him. John 14, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? He's saying, you've been in the inner circle for so long. You've been going to church for so long. You've walked with me. You've heard my teachings for so long. You've casted out demons. You've seen my miracles. You're in the inner circle. You've served in servant teams. You've sung in worship teams. But you've missed the point, Philip. 
you still don't know me. It's possible, friends, it's possible, Jesus is saying, to have lived our whole lives very religiously, very morally, behaved very decently, but to have missed the point. And without realizing it, our religion is slowly creating a world of religious self-sufficiency, where our religion somehow makes God owe us something. It's convenient, but you know what this will do? If this is your Christianity, it will make it convenient, but powerless. It will make it seemingly safe, but dead. And experientially, you know what this looks like? You know what this feels like? We've all felt this. I know we have. This is what it feels like. Spiritual boredom. Spiritual boredom. You're bored out of your minds. <laughs> you, you go to church. You go to community group. You serve in various ministries. You even tithe. But you're bored out of your minds. You feel like your spiritual disciplines have become lifeless and tedious. And you wonder why. Why? I've done all the right things. Why does my Christianity feel lifeless? It's because your religiosity has pushed him out of the vineyard. It's depersonalized him. And this is why it feels lifeless. This is why. Um, you think God loves a more polished version of yourself. That's why it feels lifeless. You think God loves a more polished version of yourself. And you know what that does? At the end of the day, deep inside, you know. If this is your relationship with God based on how good you are, if he loves you based on the mask of perfection that we so often put on, if you do receive love, therefore, God doesn't really love you, does he? He loves a better version of you. He didn't really die for you, did he? He died for a better version of you. And that makes your Christianity lifeless. It depersonalizes him. You know what the best part of being married for eight years is? It's a security that comes from knowing that although your spouse has seen the worst of you, and I mean the absolute worst, they love you still. Don't get me wrong, first dates are exciting. And after a good first date, you go home and you say, man, it seemed like they really liked me. I don't want to burst your bubble, but they don't really like you. They like the first date version of you, but they don't know you. They don't know you. They know nothing about you. But then you continue to date. God willing, you get engaged, you get married. Then five years passes by. Then 10 years passes by. Then 30 years passes by. And they've seen it all. My goodness, they've seen it all. But then, then they, they do what my wife did this week. In the midst of me taking over a very rare lunch date that we get, very rare, I took over the whole lunch date to complain about how hard my life is to a mother of a toddler who's six months pregnant, mind you. How hard my life is. How, how, and I, took, I took the whole lunch for that, my problems, with very little concern about hers. And on the cab ride back, she smiled, she brushed her fingers through my hair, and she says, I love you, and I'm sorry it's been hard. <laughs> when that happens, friends, 
I don't care how good your first date is. When that happens, it doesn't compare. Because you know they love you. Warts and all. Oh, it's nothing compared to a great first date. They love you. When that happens, friends, your Christianity may be lifeless because you've been hiding your flaws from God. You keep offering him the first date version of yourself. Stop it. You will never experience the depth of true personal love that he's offering you. We have lived like these tenants who make up our own world of religious self-sufficiency and we've depersonalized God. And by doing so, we've robbed ourselves from the whole point of what Christianity is. And like Philip, we may have gone to church our whole lives and put our best foot forward our whole lives and missed the point. But friends, this is the message of Christmas, that we have a relentlessly personal God who will not allow us to drown in our made-up reality. Last point, the relentlessly personal God. You know, at the end of our passage today, verse 39, it says that the master finally sends his son to the vineyard, right? And, if, and the son was killed. Now, if you read the book of Matthew, this was in Matthew 21, right? If you read the book of Matthew before chapter 21, five passages before our chapter, roughly six months before our chapter today, before Jesus spoke to the Pharisees about this parable, you will see that Jesus this whole time has been predicting his own death. He's been telling his disciples that the chief priests and the Pharisees will kill him. He said that in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, 17, verse 23, and chapter 20, verse 18, before he shared this passage. So who is the son in this parable really about? Jesus saying, the son is me. He's describing himself. He's saying, I am the son of the master, the son of God, if you will, sent for you. How? By being born as a baby. I told you he'll show up. As a child in a lowly place, For what purpose? To be killed by evil tenants of this world that want nothing to do with God. Why? Why would you do that? Jesus is telling us in this parable, because I will not let you keep me at a distance. I will not let you push me away. I will not let you depersonalize me. And by my death, I will redeem you. On my cross, I will take your sins upon myself and make you mine. I've heard a preacher often use this one story as a picture of what Christmas is. This, this preacher often talks about an author. Uh, the author's name is Dorothy Sayers. Dorothy Sayers, uh, she wrote a series of novels. And in her novels, she had a main character. The main character's name is Peter Whimsey. Peter Whimsey in the novel fell in love with another character in the novel. And her name is Harriet Vane. Two characters fell in love with each other. And when you read the book, you'll see the relationship is so personal. It's so real. It's so intimate. It's like a real-life relationship. And people often ask Dorothy, how did, you, how did you make their relationship feel so personal? How did it feel so real? And Dorothy said um, uh, in book reviews and other places that, that the woman in the novel, Harriet Vane, who, who fell in love with, with Peter Whimsey, was actually Dorothy herself. She said, in the middle of creating Peter Whimsey, in the middle of creating this character, she, she got into so much detail that she actually fell in love with him. 
She fell in love with her own character. What did she do? She wrote herself in the story. As Harriet Vane. And that's why, perhaps, she said, the relationship between the two felt real, because Harriet was actually Dorothy herself. What is Christmas about, friends? It's God being so in love with his creatures, with the people that he created, that he decided to write himself into the story. What were the lyrics we just sung earlier in our Christmas hymn? Hail the flesh, the Godhead see, the fullness of the Godhead, echoing Colossians chapter 2, 9. We see in bodily form, in flesh, in Jesus. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel, Emmanuel, God with us. See, the founder of every other world religion would tell you this. They would tell you that you can find eternal life by obeying these sets of rules. They will tell you you can find eternal life by worshiping that God. They will say you can find eternal life. You can find the true way by abiding in these sets of truths. They will always point you to something outside of them. What does Jesus do? He's the only founder of a world religion that says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. There is no other place I can point you to because I am God in flesh. He's making a huge distinction. What are you saying? I am truly God who has written himself into your story as truly man. And I want you so bad, I would rather die than spend eternity without you. I will not let you push me away with your religiosity. I will not let you hide your flaws from me and at best experience first date type of love for me. This is why I was born, to tell you that I see your flaws and I'm not pushed away by them. I'm not surprised by them. This is why I was born. This is why I died. I see you, not a fake version of you, not the polished version of you that you put on so often. I see you and I want you. Behold, friends, the relentlessly personal God of the Bible. And some say, some say if you preach this kind of God, if you preach this kind of gospel, if you preach this kind of love, it will lead people to spiritual laziness. It will lead people to worldliness. They're not going to care about obedience because everything's been given to them. Try it. I dare you. Try it. Try preaching this gospel to yourself every day. Try reading the Bible with these gospel lenses on every day. Try asking your friends to remind you of this gospel every day. Try coming to a church that preaches this gospel week in and week out. And when you pray, have this gospel in the forefronts of your mind. When you sin, when you sin, friends, remind yourself of this gospel, that he does not love you any less because you've been forgiven on the cross. And when you're obedient... When you've been obedient, friends, preach the gospel again, that he cannot love you any more than he already does on the cross. When you don't feel like forgiving your spouse, remind yourself of the forgiveness you've received in Christ at his own expense. When your kids mess up, remind yourself that your heavenly father doesn't love you contingent upon your obedience, but loved you despite of your disobedience of him. 
Preach this gospel to yourself at work. Preach this gospel when you're on a date. Preach this gospel when you're home alone. Saturate yourself with it every day. I dare you. And your life will not magically be perfect, but in the long run, by God's grace, your soul will soar out of the dead mechanics of lifeless religiosity into a deep, intimate, powerful relationship with a personal God. Is this your understanding of what Christianity is? If you're here and you're still exploring, I hope you see what being a Christian is actually about. It's about a relentlessly personal God who has written himself into our story, born as man, to die for sinful man. And I hope you would receive him as he's personally offered himself in this gospel word. And if you're here today, you have received Christ as Lord and Savior. You've been to church your whole life. You've, you've tried to be beaten because you are uh, uh, responding to this gift of grace. But you find yourself slowly drifting and falling into the dry world of religious self-sufficiency. Go to him in prayer. Perhaps later at home. Perhaps now during our last uh, song of response. And rip off that mask. Please. Take it off. Show him who you are. Remember your God who died for you. Not for a better version of you. That is the only power you will have to continually align your whole lives in obedience to him. While we were yet sinners, Romans 5 eight says, did he die so that we may be his. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Let's pray. What a God we have. What a love we are offered. What a relationship we are given. That you not only send people to remind us of who you are, your prophets throughout the ages, but you sent your son to die for sinful man. Because you will not let us push you away. Oh, Father, allow us to do the hard work of ripping off the mask of religiosity and now offer to you true religion true power and true strength and true obedience not because we want to control you not because we want to get something out of you but because we have a god who loved us even to the point of death death on a cross let this make our whole lives not just our sunday mornings in true worship and obedience. Let this make us fight sin. Let this make us love holiness. Let this make us walk with you and believe in your promise, in your word, that till the end of the age, you will be with us. Let us not be like Philip. Let us not be like these tenants. Let us not make up a fake world of religiosity and miss the point. Renew us again. Rip off our masks now. Let us see the love in which you have loved us with, a love beyond understanding, a love that loves us, warts and all.
Jesus' name we pray. Amen.